0: Let me invite you to take your Bibles, and we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 4 today. Genesis chapter 4. And the blue Bibles in front of you, I believe it's on page 4. It's right around there, if not. So we're continuing this series in Genesis, and i got to tell you, the more I am in this book, and the more I'm studying these opening chapters, we named this series uh gospel foundations is that right foundations of the i can't remember foundations of the gospel or gospel foundations either way i i i saw that and that's why we named it that the more i'm in it i'm like that's right like that's i didn't know how right that was because as we're getting into this there are truths that go to the very heart of who we are of how the world is and of what jesus accomplished that we just don't get if we don't get genesis So I'm grateful to dig in here once again. We're going to be looking at chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 1. So hear the word of the Lord. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael. And Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech says, seventy seven fold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You know, some weeks I get so much time studying alone in in these passages that I forget when I go to read it that I have to say those names out loud. So God helped me, but it's always kind of an adventure. Well, this morning, I want to start by telling you a few facts here. In 2020, the city of Indianapolis set a new record for most murders in a year. 245. What that means is that two out of every three days in the year 2020, someone was killed in Indianapolis, and that is horrible, but not as horrible as what happened the next year in 2021, where for the second year in a row, we broke the record with 26 more murders than the year before for a total of 271. 271 people made in the image of god whose lives were suddenly taken by violence one of the top news stories on local news sites whenever you look almost always includes the latest murder police in the city are at their wits end the city has thrown millions of dollars trying to curb the violence neighborhood groups and coalitions are doing everything they can think of to stop it so the question is What's at the root of this problem? Where does this impulse to turn against one another, against other image bearers, where does that come from? Where did it all start? Here's another set of facts for you. Last year, 360 million Christians lived in places where they experienced high levels of persecution. 4,488 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. And almost 6,000 people were killed because they followed Jesus. That's an average of 16 people being killed every day for no other reason than the fact that they follow Jesus. Where does that come from? Why such vicious and violent hatred of Christians? Is this just a recent phenomenon? Something that world events of our day have brought about? Where does this come from? Genesis 4 shows us that the roots of murder and violence against the people of God go back almost to the beginning. What we see in the news today isn't new. It's merely the latest chapter in a story that's been unfolding since Genesis 4. So today what I want us to do is I want us to go behind the headlines and see the story behind the story. What's really happening in every murder? What's really happening in every persecution of Christians? Back in chapter 3, we saw what's called the fall, where mankind fell from innocence into sin and paradise was lost. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and because of their sin, they were expelled from the garden. And they faced life in a world marked by curse. As we looked at the curse last week, we saw just how far they fell. Now in chapter 4, what we're going to see is man falling even further into sin. Or here's another way to think of these opening chapters is to remember how Jesus summed up the law. Jesus said the whole law could be summed up as love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And in chapter 3, what we saw is man sin against God by failing to love and obey Him. Now in chapter 4, we see that same lack of love turn toward each other. Chapter 3 is man sinning vertically and chapter 4 is man sinning horizontally. But we also see something else here in this chapter. Back in chapter three, verse 15, when God cursed the serpent, he promised that there would be an ongoing battle between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. There would be this war, generation after generation after generation between two different lines of descendants. And here we see that battle commence. Now in our text, it provides a marker for us, so it does kind of the dividing for us, and it divides it into three sections. If you look down at your Bibles, you'll see that in verse 1, verse 17, and verse 25, all begin basically the same way. Someone knew his wife, and she bore this or that person. And that repetition, it's a device for an author to say, here's where I'm breaking it. I'm using the same thing to say, new section, new section, new section. So, here's how we're going to break down the passage. And I have to give credit, I was greatly helped by uh, Pastor Kevin DeYoung and his titling of these sections. I I could not improve upon them. So these are his titles that I thought were very fitting. So in chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, what we see is the sin of Cain. Then in verses 17 to 24, we see the culture of Cain. And then finally, in verses 25 to 26, we see the hope of the offspring. So let's look first at the sin of Cain. I'm just going to put you at ease. Most of our time is going to be in this first section, okay? They are not equally weighted, so do not despair when you see where we're at after the first one. So as we look at the first one, as the scene opens in verse 1, we're greeted with hope. Remember, Adam had named his wife Eve, which sounds like life-giver, because she would be the mother of all the living he said so he's got this hope god said we're going to have offspring none yet but i think i think more are coming and now here in chapter 4 verse 1 that hope has come to fruition she has a son and she names him Cain and then she has a second son and names him Abel so we've got two brothers we've got two brothers who adopt two different jobs Cain is a farmer out working the ground just like his dad, Adam, while Abel is a shepherd. In verse 3 then, at some time in the future, we don't know, just in the course of time, both brothers bring an offering to the Lord. But only one brother's offering is accepted. We see that Abel's offering is accepted by God, while Cain's is not. Now the question that's supposed to provoke in us is, why Why is that the case? Why is one offering accepted and the other not? And people love to speculate about this. They love to speculate about a lot of things in the early chapters of Genesis. And this is no different. Some speculate that it has to do with Cain offering fruit instead of meat. But we don't really have any reason to think that in the text. Even later in our Bibles, crops that come from the ground are a good and legitimate offering. God never says, thou shall not bring crops as an offering. And there's also nothing more holy about the fact that Abel's a shepherd versus Cain, who's a farmer. So what's going on here? Why the difference in acceptance? Well, one clue might have to do with how their offerings are described. Notice that Abel is said to bring, quote, of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. In other words, this is the best of the best. The firstborn means God got first dibs. Like we hear firstborn, it's like, well, that's not a big deal. But think of it in these terms. Put it in money for our situation. Nobody here is giving, giving sheep to the church. Please do not. But if you say, you know, this year, I'm going to give $5,000 to the church. You say, no matter what comes, I'm going to give $5,000. Now, if your income that year ends up being 100000 not a big deal. But what happens if something changes and your income that year is only 20,000. Same gift, but now it matters a lot more. The Same way here. As the firstborn of the flock, Abel wouldn't have known how many sheep he's going to have that year. He's given the first. The others haven't come yet. He doesn't total them up and say, I'm going to give X percentage. He says, first one that comes, it's yours, God. What if he only gets two sheep? Now, he might get a hundred sheep. I don't know, but he didn't know either. And so Right away, we see that he's giving God first, saying, I'm not waiting, God. You're not getting the scraps, the leftovers, a reasonable amount. You're getting the first. Before I do anything else, before I know how secure it is, you get it, God. But then it also says that he gets the fat. Now, we don't necessarily think about the fat as the prime cut of meat, but the fat was the best part of the animal. Later, God specifically dedicated it, says, that's for me. So here we see Abel is giving the first and the best to God. Now, if Cain were doing the same thing, what we would expect to read here is that Cain brought the first fruits of his crops, right? That's what we see later in the Old Testament. But what does it say? It simply says he brought an offering of fruit of the ground. Just some fruit. Not the first. Maybe not the best. We don't know. But don't miss this. He does still give an offering to God. He doesn't just keep everything. He gives something, but it was more of an empty ritual. He's just checking the box here. He was doing something for God just so that he could say he did it. So there's a difference right away in the quality of what each brother offered. But really, that was only the result of the true difference. The true difference was in the heart of the one who made the offer. How do we know that? We've got a great commentary on the Old Testament called the New Testament. And in Hebrews 11, 4, listen to how it explains the scene in Genesis 4. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So he says, what separated the two is that It wasn't that one was meat and one was fruit. It's that one believed when the other one didn't. God accepted Abel's sacrifice because it was given from a heart that trusted in him and hoped in him. What pleased God wasn't what Abel did, but what Abel believed. On the other hand, God was not pleased with Cain's offering. Why not? I mean, after all, didn't he do the right thing? I mean, the guy brought God an offering. He put his check in the plate. His actions looked good and godly. But God sees the heart. And he knew that Cain's heart wasn't acting from a faith in God and his promises. Now, just to prove that's the case, look at how Cain responds when God doesn't accept his offering. What does it say? It says, he was very angry. Literally, he burned with anger. Are you kidding me? You accept his offering but not mine, God? Why is he so mad? Because Cain didn't bring an offering out of faith and worship. He did it so that God would accept and bless him. He did it so that God would be in his debt. Cain did the right thing. He says, I did this for you, God. Now you should do this for me. I did the thing. I did the offering. I did the religious thing. Why aren't you holding up your end? And can't we be the same way? I mean, we do all the right things. We go to church. We give. We serve. We stay out of trouble. So we start to think, God owes us now. Why wouldn't he accept us? And so when things don't go our way, we get a little angry with God. Seriously, God, after all I've done, I go to church just as much as them, and their life looks very different than mine. Why don't I have what they have? And I think it's noteworthy for us. It, it's, it's informative for us that it's so hard to tell at first why one brother was accepted and the other isn't. There's a reason that we speculate so much. is because both looked good on the outside. We read that and we say, I don't get it. Why one and why not the other? They, uh, they're both doing the right thing. Yes, both did a good religious thing, but only one was motivated by a heart of faith. The other was just going through the motions to try to get something from God. Not worshiping and wanting God. And it's a good diagnostic question for us this morning. Are we doing what we do because our hope and trust are in Jesus? Or because we're trying to manipulate God into giving us what we really want? Do you find yourself getting mad when God doesn't give you the thing you're really after? Saying, God, I did all this. Why don't I get that? When God says, yeah, but you got me. And that's a very dangerous place to be. And God knew that. That's why he goes to Cain to give him a warning. Look at verse seven. He says, Cain, why are you so angry? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. First of all, just notice the mercy of God here. I mean, he could have just been done with Cain at this point, right? He botched the offering. God saw what was in his heart. That's why he didn't accept it. But instead of just driving him away and saying, that's it, you're done, God mercifully came and held up a mirror to Cain so he could see the battle that was raging in his heart. God warns him. He says, Cain, there's, sin is crouching like a lion. It's right outside the door. It's waiting to pounce and devour you. It wants to destroy you, Cain. It wants to control you. To make you serve its passions and its anti-God purposes. So Cain, you must rule over it. Don't give it a chance. Don't give it a foothold. Don't open the door. It's at the door. Don't open the door a little crack just to see how bad it is or see, kind of see what it's like. Rule over it. Keep it out. And in his mercy, God gives us the same warning. He comes to us and shows us by his word what our hearts are like. When we're in Christ, he warns us. He says in Romans, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Sounds a lot like what he said to Cain. Friends, here's the good news. If you are a Christian, you no longer have to obey its passions. You can rule over it. In fact, you can and you must rule over it in Christ. You no longer have to give in to sin. See, the problem with Cain is that the battle in his heart was a battle of passions, a battle of desires. He wanted something, and he didn't have it, and so it made him angry. James 4, two warns us about this battle in our hearts. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Friends, when we don't rule over our sinful desires, but let them rule over us, they can lead to horrible consequences, even murder. And guess what happens next for Cain? Verse eight, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Just like that. Now notice, notice here, just like Adam and Eve eating the fruit in chapter 3, most of this narrative that we're looking at is what leads up to and follows after the main action. The actual description of the action of killing him is brief and to the point. It's not flowery language, doesn't take long, just that he rose up against his brother and killed him. But the weight of the passage falls not just on the sinful action, but on what's going on in the heart leading up to and flowing out of the act. That should tell us something when we read our Bibles. If these narratives, God's not just concerned with what did you do, what did you not do, it's why, what's going on in here, and how do you respond when you do something wrong. So here Cain's unbelief has led him to anger against God and his unmet desire to have what Abel has has led him to violence and murder. He's mad at God, but his anger gets taken out on the one who bears God's image. And here we see the ongoing battle between the line of the woman and the line of the serpent. Now both of these brothers were born of Eve, but only Abel showed himself to be the offspring of the woman while Cain proved himself to be the offspring of the serpent by his heart and by his actions. Listen to how 1 John 3 talks about this and see, see if it makes sense in our struggle between Cain and Abel. Listen to how 1 John 3 talks and see if you're like, yeah, that's what's going on here. 1 John 3, verse 8 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So we've got two groups of people in this passage those born of God, God's seed, and those who are children of the devil. And the main way the pastor says you tell these two groups apart is that those who are offspring of the serpent, offspring of the devil, do not practice righteousness. In other words, they don't have a faith like Abel's that's working itself out in deeds of righteousness. And they don't love their brother. And this is the same thing, in case you are wondering, This is what changes in us when we trust in Jesus. If you remember back to when you trusted in Jesus... A, you found yourself being made righteous by faith and you started doing different things. You're like, that's weird. Like I always used to do this, but now I'm doing this. How? What is going on? But not only that, suddenly you're like, and there's these people that I get together with every Sunday. I love those people. I didn't know some of them a few weeks ago or I, I, I used to not really couldn't stand them, but I love these people now. Where did that come from? Well, that's because you've been changed, so that now you are not a seed of the serpent. You are a seed of the woman. But maybe, maybe I'm making too much of this. Maybe we're making a leap here, saying that what's going on in First John three is talking about these two groups, the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Maybe I'm just making a big deal about this. Well, let's keep reading in First John three to see what happens. Verse eleven. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brother's. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So, the example that the Apostle John wants to use to show what's going on in this battle between the two lines of people is Cain and Abel. He says, Don't be like Cain. He was of the evil one. In other words, he's the offspring of the serpent, and he murdered his brother. Why? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain desired the same acceptance from God that Abel had, but he wanted it his way. He wanted to live however he wanted to live, give God whatever he wanted to give God, and God should just accept it and accept him. And when God accepted the righteous sacrifice of faith from his brother, but not his sacrifice, it sparked a deep hatred in him because he wanted it his way, not God's. Just like his father. See, Jesus told a group of religious Jews in John 8 who thought they were doing all the right things and they wouldn't believe in him. Jesus said, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. That's why John says in 1 John 3, don't be surprised brothers that the world hates you why because it was true of the devil it was true of Cain and it is true of all those in the line of the serpent they hate christians because their own deeds are evil and those in christ are righteous this is why persecution exists it's the battle raging on so he says don't be surprised Sometimes people get so worked up and surprised when they read news stories about persecution against Christians. Though, Can you believe what's happening? It's like, yes! The Bible says two times in the New Testament. There's only two times it says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised the world hates you and don't be surprised when this fiery trial comes upon you. And yet, what are the two things that we get so worked up about? God, I'm suffering. God, we're being persecuted. He says, yes, I told you. Because the battle's raging on, friends. It started in Genesis 4. It started in Genesis 3. We start to see the first skirmish in Genesis 4. That's what's going on. So much more. We need to keep moving. So, what happens next? Just like with Adam and Eve, God seeks out the sinner. Again, He doesn't just condemn him on the spot, He asks him a question. Inviting confession. Where is Abel your brother? God knows where Abel is. He's not seeking information. He's seeking confession. Now here is where Cain had a choice to make. Another choice. Cain could have come clean and begged for mercy. He could have said, God, I did a horrible thing. I really messed up. I'm so sorry. Please have mercy on me. But instead... He lies. He says, I don't know. I don't know where he is. Then he goes even further. He throws back his own sneering question at God. (laughs) Am I my brother's keeper? And here we see how Cain is even more hardened than his father Adam. When God confronted Adam in his sin, yes, Adam tried to shift the blame, but he does at least admit his wrong. Yeah, I ate. But not Cain. Cain flat out lies to God and denies any responsibility or wrongdoing. And when God responds here, we see something really important about God. We see that our God is a God of justice. He can't just let sin go. He tells Cain, The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Abel's blood is crying out for justice. Because innocent and righteous Abel was cut down by unrighteous Cain. He couldn't stand how Abel's righteousness exposed his own sinfulness. He hated the way Abel was accepted by God because of his righteousness. While Cain's efforts to get God to accept him on his terms all failed. So he killed him. And now Abel's blood cried out. And it's not just crying out into the void. It's crying out to God for justice because he is the judge. His blood, Abel's blood is crying out, give him what he deserves. Let justice be served. And so it has always been in the battle between those who are the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Between those who are made righteous by faith and those who hate them because of their righteousness. Listen to what Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. Listen to, listen to what he calls them right off the bat. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. In other words, I'm, I'm warning you This is verse 7. I'm warning you, you're in danger. But what will you do with my warning? Jesus goes on. These prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Why? So that on you, you serpents, may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. He says, I've, I'm warning you, scribes and Pharisees. Like, I'm sending people to hold up mirrors and say, look at your heart, look at what's happening, and you just persecute them. You kill them. You don't want to hear it. And so on you will come all the righteous blood that's been shed. Now, if we're being real honest with ourselves We should tremble at these verses, because we can be so much like them and so much like Cain, not turning back at God's warnings, looking to be right with God on our own terms, treating our brothers with contempt and scorning our very neighbor. So what hope? What hope can we have when our sins and the righteous blood of Abel and the righteous blood of those we mistreat cries out against us for justice saying give them what they deserve what is our hope we have a better able jesus was the true innocent and righteous one he perfectly lived a life pleasing to god and his righteousness angered others so much that they killed him And just like Abel, the blood of Jesus cries out to God. But Hebrews 12 tells us the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Why? Because where Abel's blood cries out for justice against us, the blood of Jesus cries out for forgiveness. Where Abel's blood says, give them what they deserve, Jesus says, give them what I deserve. It's because Jesus this. The incredible part about this is that the cry from Jesus' blood, I, I want to be careful that I don't say one was a cry for justice and one was not. Because Jesus' cry was also a cry for justice. Because Jesus paid for all our sins so that every last one has been dealt with. Which means that justice has been served. So it would be unjust for God to therefore punish us for a sin that Jesus already paid for. So when our sins rise up before God Jesus' blood cries out saying yes they did that and yes I already paid for that. Give me justice Father and give them forgiveness. Which is why 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sins He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh that word just. You gotta feel that word. It's not just yeah that's fair. It's like It's not just that God has the kindness and the disposition of mercy, which he does, but it's just and right and good and appropriate that we be forgiven, not because of us, but because Jesus already paid for it. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And when Jesus shed his blood for us, just like Abel, his sacrifice was accepted by God. How do we know? God raised him back to life. So we can have confidence to confess our sins because we know the blood of Jesus cries out for forgiveness and we know that God is just to forgive us. But Cain, however, didn't confess. He stayed hardened in his sin and so God cursed him from the ground. He said the ground would no longer be fruitful for him. Cain's father, Adam, experienced the curse on the ground, but now Cain's alienation from the ground goes even further. And from now on, it says, he would be a wanderer. He would be cut off from community, cut off from all sense of belonging. He'd never feel at home and would be restless and unwelcome wherever he went. That's a pretty good description of what sin does to us. It makes us feel disconnected from others and afraid of how they're going to hurt us. We never feel settled, so we just keep on wandering. Yet even in judgment, do you see the mercy of God even here? When Cain is afraid that someone will kill him, God provides him protection. He puts a mark on him, and no, we have no idea what that is. And he warns that if anyone kills Cain, God will take vengeance on them sevenfold. This is God protecting them, saying, do not mess with this one. If you do, you will pay seven times over. After this, the scene ends with Cain dwelling in the land of Nod, which you probably have a footnote in your Bible, which means wandering. So what we have at the end is the wanderer settles in the land of wandering. And notice where it is. East of Eden he's moving farther from the garden now let's look real quickly at our last two sections I told you that's where we're going to spend most of our time so real briefly look at our last two sections to see this downward spiral continue in verses 17 to 24 we see the culture of Cain now the section starts the same way like I said Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch and then from there we see two things about this culture that comes from Cain's line. It creates good developments, but it distorts God's design. It creates good developments, but it distorts God's design. Notice some of these amazing cultural developments birthed by those in the line of Cain. Here you've got the first city constructed. Now this probably, most likely, was a sinful thing. It was probably done out of pride or wanting to leave a legacy of Don't forget me, but regardless, it's the first city. So the first city is constructed in his line. Then you've got the development of raising livestock. Then you've got music and the arts beginning. You've got metallurgy and the creation of metal tools. Civilization begins to take root and develop by leaps and bounds, and it's largely through Cain's line. One thing that shows us that by God's common grace, even sinful culture can create amazing things. Things that make life easier and more enjoyable. But that's not the only thing we see here. Because while they created good developments, they also distorted God's design. We see this most clearly in Lamech, the seventh from Adam. Now, given that seven is a number of completeness in the Bible, it's probably not a coincidence that in the seventh Through the line of Cain, we see a fullness or a completeness of sin and violence. Lamech is like Cain, but worse. Notice three things about him. First, Lamech distorts God's design for marriage. In Genesis 2, God joined Adam and Eve in marriage, saying, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One man, one woman, one flesh. Lamech introduces polygamy. He takes two wives, changing God's design for marriage. So the the fact that we see so many distortions for God's design for marriage today, again, should not surprise us. It's always been this way as sin works its way through a society. Second, Lamech devalues human life through his excessive retribution. You see there in his song that he sings, a man struck and wounded him. But rather than returning blow for blow, Lamech kills the guy. The guy hit him, he killed the guy. His response was disproportionate. And this excessive retaliation is exactly why God later gives us the law about eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. People misuse that verse all the time to justify or encourage harsher punishments, saying like, well, if that happened to them, then you got to do it to them. It was put in place to limit what you could do so that you couldn't be Lamech and say, you hit me, fine, I'll kill you. You scrape my arm, I cut off your head. That's the point of that law saying, no, 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 you can't go further than they went. It was meant to protect against retaliation that was too harsh. Third thing we see, Lamech boasts about his sin and his vengeance in this song. This song is like the precursor to all the the revenge songs and we've got them in all the genres. I was trying to think of them. I could come up with revenge type songs in rap, in country, and in rock at least. I didn't come up with any in jazz or classical, but if you know those, let me know. But think about those songs. You probably have some that come to mind that just boasts about, you're going to mess with me? Watch what I can do to you. Oh, you did that to me? Watch how I get back at you. That's what Lamech's doing here. He's he's singing a song to his wife saying, you don't want to mess with me. Because while God's protective vengeance for Cain might be sevenfold, Lamech says, that's nothing. I'm going to have 77 fold. That seven-fold stuff might be okay for my great-great-great-granddaddy Cain, but my self-protection is even better than what God offers. He boasts about how untouchable he thinks he is. What we see is that vengeance is being heightened. Sin is having its effects, and a few generations later, people are hungry to get back at those who wronged them. Violence is increasing, and payback is getting more vicious I'm not talking about Facebook, but you see how like it kind of sounds like right out of our world, doesn't it? But Jesus, man, every time things look like they're lost, along comes Jesus and just flips things upside down. Jesus comes and turns Lamech 77 on its head. He shows us how the gospel transforms our response to being wronged. Instead of thirsting for revenge and payback, what does Jesus say we should do? Listen to Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Lamech says, you think your sevenfold payback is something? Watch how I pay you back 77 times over. That's, um, that's look at my vengeance. And Jesus says, you think sevenfold forgiveness is something? I tell you to do it 77 times. You've never seen forgiveness like this. Sin urges us to become increasingly vengeful, but grace urges us to become increasingly forgiving. Christians don't seek out our own vengeance. Instead, we heed the words of Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine I will repay, says the Lord. This is yet another difference between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. That brings us to our last point. Chapter 4 shows us this ongoing downward spiral of sin from Adam to Cain, down through his line, culminating in Lamech, all falling further and further and further. And what hope are we left with that things will ever get better? After all, the only hope we had to this point in the Bible is that one day there would come someone from the line of the woman to crush the serpent's head and undo the curse of sin. But righteous Abel is dead. And Cain has shown himself to be of the wrong line. It seems like the promise of the woman's offspring has been cut off by the offspring of the serpent. Has evil won? Then we come to verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring, instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Do you hear it? Another offspring. Eve intentionally uses the same word from Genesis 3.15, because she's on to something. The line of promise lives on just when it looked like the hope of offspring had been snuffed out, God provides a baby. Just like he'll do again and again throughout this story. From providing offspring to barren women like Sarah and Rebecca and keep going. To rescuing offspring from Pharaoh's order in Egypt to kill all Hebrew babies. To one day rescuing the offspring of the woman from Herod's order to kill the baby boys in Bethlehem. Over and over and over, the seed of the serpent tries to murder and cut off the seed of the woman. But again and again, the hope of the offspring triumphs. Even today, brothers and sisters, persecution will abound against those belonging to Christ. So many times, people have worried that the church won't make it another generation. And yet, Jesus keeps his promise to build his church. His precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God is saved to sin no more. And notice how our passage ends in verse 26. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The line of Cain may have left a legacy of cultural achievement, but they also left a legacy of violence, vengeance, distortion of marriage, devaluing of human life, and sin. But the line of promise, the line of promise is remembered for one thing and one thing only. They worshipped. And it's the only legacy that matters. They called upon the name of the Lord. So church, let's follow their lead. Let's take our place in the family line. Let's stand against the devil's lies. Let's love the captive soul, but rage against the captor. And let's know The outcome is secure. Christ will have the prize for which he died. A long line of sinners made righteous in his blood. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for your goodness, for your plan. Lord, that no matter what comes against it, your promises cannot be thwarted. Your promise to provide an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent, you fulfilled. And you're still fulfilling your promise to build your church. So God, would you hearten us today? Lord, as we face whatever opposition we face, Lord, as we struggle with the own sin that wages war in our hearts, would you help us know that there is still power in the blood and it will never lose any of its power until all the ransomed church of God is saved to sin no more. So God, we thank you for Jesus. We pray that you would help us trust him all the more. It's in his name we pray and all God's people said.